0: Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the EarFluence Podcast. As we wind down 2021, we're gonna share some of our favorite episodes from our clients that were recorded in our studio at Raleigh Founded. We'll share these episodes in December, then in January, we'll be back with new episodes of the EarFluence Podcast. Today, we're sharing an episode of the Maternal Health Innovation Podcast from the University of North Carolina's Maternal Health Learning and Innovation Center. On this episode, host Kristen Tully sat on the couch with Karen sheffield Abdullah to talk about a pretty heavy topic, the stress of being black and pregnant. According to Karen, black women have twice the rate of preterm birth compared to white women, and that has persisted despite decades of research, despite differences in socioeconomic status, maternal education, and access to prenatal care. The content here is eye-opening, and you'll love these two very soothing podcast voices.
1: Welcome to Maternal Health Innovation, a podcast from the Maternal Health Learning and Innovation Center, or MHLIC, where we connect around culture, measures, and best practices in maternal health. I'm Dr. Kristen Tully, co-chair of the MHLIC Innovation Support Corps, and I'm a researcher at UNC Chapel Hill. It's a joy to be part of a learning community To strengthen our national policies and systems of care so that they're more accommodating for birthing parents, their infants, and those who love and care for them. In this podcast episode, we get to hear from Dr. Karen Sheffield Abdullah. Dr. Karen is faculty in the School of Nursing at UNC, a midwife, a mindfulness instructor, and a very thoughtful, wonderful person.
2: I'm a mother of four. First and foremost, I'm a nurse midwife of 16 years. Love all things pregnancy, mamas, babies, and everything in between across the lifespan for women's health and birthing individuals. And I'm also a mindfulness instructor at the core and heart of who I am. I'm also a PhD prepared researcher. am assistant professor at UNC Chapel Hill School of Nursing. And I identify as a black woman and really, as I think about my work and I think about what drives my work, I think about what jazzes me, all of those things together collectively have shaped who I am and who I have become. So as I think about my research, right? So if I were to put on my research hat, I'm super interested in exploring stress and anxiety in perinatal, pregnant, and postpartum. Black birthing individuals. And you'll hear me interchangeably use those terms throughout this podcast. So recognizing that not all people who give birth identify as a woman or as a mother, the terminology is shifting now where we use this term of birthing individual or birthing person. But you may hear me sometimes revert back to using the word woman, mama, mother, but recognizing that I'm respecting that distinction there. So um, exploring stress and anxiety in perinatal black women and the impact on their birth outcomes, in particular preterm birth, understanding that black women have twice the rate of preterm birth compared to white women, and that has persisted despite decades of research, despite... um, differences in socioeconomic status, maternal education, access to prenatal care. When you pair or look at a black woman and a white woman who are pregnant, the black woman will have their baby early at twice the rate of white women. And that has persisted. And and my question is why? And what my dissertation work really centered around was looking at the unique experiences of stress for black women utilizing a particular conceptual framework called Superwoman Schema, developed by Dr. Cheryl Woods-Giscombe, who was my dissertation chair, advisor, mentor, colleague, friend. And it basically states that there are certain social, historical, and cultural perspectives that have happened in this country that have caused Black women to take on certain characteristics that have shaped their experiences. And um, there are five different characteristics. I don't need to list them all, but just to state that some of them are resistance to being vulnerable, determination to succeed despite limited resources, emotional suppression, caregiver role, things of that nature. And so I utilize this conceptual framework to ask the question, is there something unique about the stress experience for Black women that it caused us to have these health disparities in our birth outcomes that we have not looked at in the past? So thinking about this contextualized, nuanced, unique stress experience for Black women and how that may be impacting our birth outcomes. And so I consider myself a stress researcher, but I'm also super interested in this idea of anxiety. We know that stress can lead to preterm birth. We know that anxiety can lead to preterm birth. But I don't think that we've sufficiently elucidated that within the Black community, especially talking about it with Black women. And so I fundamentally ask the question, When I say the word stress, what comes to mind? What does stress mean for you? And surprisingly or not, they said things like anxiety, Mm -hmm. overwhelmed, got a lot going on, right? And so I was like, okay, I knew anxiety was a thing, right? And then I asked them things about Superwoman Schema. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard of the term? Mm -hmm. What does it mean? Why do you think that this has come about? Are there benefits to it? Are there detriments to it? And so they told me. And then I also asked them things like about mindfulness. Mindfulness, as I mentioned, I am a mindfulness instructor, and I'm really looking to ultimately develop a culturally tailored, patient-centered, trauma-sensitive, mindfulness-based intervention targeting stress and anxiety in Black perinatal women in the hopes of being able to improve their birth outcomes but if I'm being completely transparent, I'm interested in improving quality of life and well-being for black women, yes. because I'm interested in yes. improving quality of life and well-being for black women, period. Yes. But when you attach it to their birth outcomes, that's when it becomes more fundable. That's when people are a little bit more interested, because preterm birth and its consequences is a $26 billion cost to this country per year. And so people's ears perk up when they think about the cost that's associated with Um, preterm birth. And so I asked women, when I say the word mindfulness, what comes to mind? Have you even heard of it, right? So we can kind of, I I use this term, like, as researchers, as accommodations, we can often kind of pontificate from our silos about what we think the masses need. But we need to ask the fundamental question of that community. And so what Have they heard of the word mindfulness? Because if I develop a mindfulness program, but they have no interest in it, then what's the point? So I asked them that. And I also said, if I were to develop a mindfulness-based intervention targeting stress and anxiety for you during pregnancy, would that be acceptable? And there was a resounding 100% of them said, yes, absolutely acceptable. Then I said, furthermore, if I were to develop this program, what would you want to see in it? What would make it jazzy? What would make it novel? What would make you want to come every week? Right. And they told me. And so now I am at the next stage of taking that information and developing this intervention. Um, And I'm even, you know, I'm very aware of language, especially in this last couple of years with concurrent pandemics happening. And so I even pause a bit when I say the word intervention, because I don't really know that we need to intervene upon a particular population. So thinking about a mindfulness program Mm -hmm. that would be meeting the needs and doing it in a way where Black women would know that they are seen, that they are heard, and that they are valued. And how do we show them that? We show them that by including them in the development of programming that is to meet their needs. Right. So one of the other things that I did ask very early on is, is there anything uniquely stressful about being pregnant? I'm just, I was just curious. And then I said, is there anything uniquely stressful about being black and pregnant? Mm -hmm. And that's when it got really interesting in terms of what they told me. And so, I can stop there or no, I can go what did into they more.
1: <laughs> and I just wanna yeah. I just wanna, you know, reflect back for a moment too. You've listed so many things, you know, valuing women for ourselves, not only, you know, for birth outcomes, but also for us, you know. Um and then you've also just outlined being with the community, you know, like The whole way. Absolutely. And and that is the way to do things. I think that is just the way, you know, there's, you can call it a lot of things in human-centered design or participatory research. There's, there's lots, but like, this is also, you know, research justice, I think. Like, let's, let's have our positions, you know, collectively be in direct service. And so that's just so inspiring.
2: Yeah, I really think it's about developing programming and listening to the voices of the population, of the people, of the women that I want to serve Mm -hmm. and doing that in, in an intentional way and being present. Right. And so I believe that's where the mindfulness piece even comes in for me. I'm a practitioner of mindfulness, I'm a mindfulness instructor very simple definition of mindfulness by Jon Kabat-Zinn is paying attention in the present moment for whatever is arising and doing so without judgment. And so when I bring myself back to present moment and then really in true communication with an individual and my mind's not off thinking about the next thing or ruminating or worrying about what just happened, but really being able to be present, I'm valuing that experience. Mm -hmm. And I really feel like, you know, as a midwife, I have the heart of the midwife, so I really feel like I resonate heart to heart with people. Mm -hmm. And so really valuing what it is that they're telling me they wanna wanna see. Part of what they wanna see is that they want to have the intervention, the programming, be developed for us by us. Mm -hmm. Right? So they want to have mindfulness instructors that look like them, that sound like them. They want to be in an environment that feels safe, an environment where um, nature is brought inside. They also talked about the importance of it really solely being for black women, They recognize that while this may be helpful, mindfulness programming may be helpful for other populations, they really want it to be such that those that are included are Black women so that there is an an identity that is shared across, Mm -hmm. right? And that is not to say that Black women are a homogenous group, Mm -hmm. right? That we all come with our backgrounds, but yet there is a common thread there whereby you're not having to explain certain things. There's an inherent understanding. And I also think that that comes back to this superwoman schema piece where this emotional suppression or maintaining this stoic exterior resistance to being vulnerable because you're not sure who's in the room. When you know who's in the room, there's that, that veil, if you will, can be lifted. Mm-hmm. That burden that is carried can be lifted. And you can show up authentically as you are. Mm -hmm. And this sense of community is super important. And so I honor that. Mm -hmm. I recognize that. And so now the idea is how do I make that happen, Mm -hmm. right? And so that's um, part of the reason why I decided to become a mindfulness instructor myself, Mm -hmm. right? There's not a lot of black female mindfulness instructors out there. Mm -hmm. And so I said, I need to start with me. And so that's what made me decide to go through Brown University's Mindfulness Center, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Teacher Certification, which is what I'm um, pursuing. Because I really want to understand the core precepts, the core tenets of mindfulness that are amenable to adaptation for this population. What is it within MBSR that I think would work really well, right? And what might not work as well? Or how do I culturally tailor that? So it's it sounds like a bunch of fancy words but when we break that down the culturally tailored piece is centering the lived experience of the black woman and what their values are what they're saying is important and tailoring the intervention to incorporate that
1: those voices right yeah and, and you can only do that when you have real relationships with them tell us about what it means to be safe and I knew yeah. you and brave. Yeah, yeah. So in this past year, as I said, I've been
2: in this past year or two, I've really become a little bit more aware of language and how we use language. And as I think about cultivating a safe space, I, I had some hesitancy in how I was using that word just because when we're in a group setting... Topics may come up that don't feel safe for an individual. It doesn't feel safe to share, or it may be activating for that person because of their individual experience, perhaps with trauma, right? And so can we ever say that a space is truly safe? Because you never know what may be said may not feel safe for an individual. And so I have thought about this idea of creating a brave space where people can show up authentically as who they are and share courageously. And so often when I'm in groups or in, in settings or in spaces, I will say, I don't know that we can create a safe space, but what I am wanting to be able to do is create a brave space. And out of that was born this company that I've developed called Brave Company. And brave is an acronym that stands for boldly resilient, authentically valued, and expecting. And this idea of expecting is a bit of of a play on word. It can mean a couple of things. Expecting for the birthing individual would mean expecting the child. But for non-pregnant individuals, expecting really is about what are you expecting in life?
1: And I think that that transparency and that recognition and like to me that proactive acknowledgement to build decision making around how we want to engage and like if we know what we say is protected and if it's valued and it's for something you know like we have a purpose like in in all of our activities like in with with research participants and with each other and then in our you know, our dissemination efforts or our programs at work, like knowing that, and I think reaffirming it all the time like uh, matters, I think is incredibly helpful.:
2: Yeah, and as I think about you know, perinatal health care, right and and what is needed, I think it looks like fostering an environment where they can show up in brave ways. And being honest about their experiences and being in an environment where being vulnerable is okay and where they know that they are being seen, heard, and valued by their healthcare providers. Right. So I, that's as I'm thinking about, you know, particular projects that you and I are working on together and thinking about how we move the needle, mm-hmm. shift the paradigm. I don't think it needs to be that complicated, Mm -hmm. Kristen. I think there are some very basic core principles, values that we can bring to the table collectively to think about how systematic change can happen Mm -hmm. within healthcare systems and trickling, if you will, to the healthcare providers on so many different levels such that when we walk in the room, with someone who has just given birth or perhaps somebody who is even laboring, right, thinking about prenatal care and postnatal care, I think if we show up in ways where they know that they're being seen and, and you, you take a moment, yeah, that that carries so much weight in terms of trust that that individual now says, okay, it, something's different about the care I'm receiving mm-hmm. here.
1: And what do you think about our healthcare team member, friends, and, you know, the community as a whole with, with nursing and with the providers, you know, what are your thoughts about how people can be equipped with providing the care that they would like to in these very, very hard times? It is hard times. And as a
2: clinician, right, as a nurse midwife, a clinician of 16 years, I recognize there's a lot. Right, that's happening right now, but just inherently within the profession, we're busy, right? We're constantly moving from room to room or you know, from space to space. And how do we prioritize the person that we're with in that moment? I think there's multiple ways we can think about doing that. As a midwife, I think inherently within the education that I received at Yale, it 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 was modeled for me, it was demonstrated for me how you can show up and be present with a uh, birthing individual and letting them know that you are my priority. Yes, it may be the fact that there are all types of things happening outside of this room that need my attention, but in this moment, I'm here with you. And it may be something as simple as sitting down, not standing up and writing or at at the computer or charting or whatever, something just as simple as that. And listening, not interrupting. And then shared decision making, informed consent. Here are your choices, but you ultimately are the one that's making the decision, right? But and 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 not only that, but shared decision making and informed consent in language that makes sense to the individual, mm-hmm. right? We talk about language concordance, right? So that can even be for um, non-English speaking mm-hmm. patients. But also talking in a way in which folks can understand what are the decisions that they're making, right? What am I consenting to here? Right. You know, whether it's about um, a procedure or contraception or what their needs are for their transition home, Mm -hmm. right? Thinking about how we can just, if I were to, you know, introduce the mindfulness principles here, Mm -hmm. take a pause Take a breath. Be present. And maybe you do that prior to walking in the room. Maybe that's educating healthcare providers, healthcare systems, healthcare teams about mindfulness principles, practices. Taking that breath before you enter the room so that you can be fully present with that individual. And I guarantee you that when you take the time to sit and listen, what they will say. What you can learn, there's some there's some literature out there I know about how quickly healthcare providers interrupt mm-hmm. the patient when we ask mm-hmm. them a question and they start to answer and then we're like, yeah, so, you know, and we don't actually give them the
1: space or the time to answer the question. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's so much needed attention to implicit bias and training. And a huge part of that story to me is like, keeping you like, you know, keeping mindfulness, like keeping that pause and like that intentionality that you've been outlining throughout communication. So it is actually meaningful. And so that when someone asks a question about, I'm not sure my baby's feeding enough or, you know, is it, is it okay if I take his pills or whatever, like that we recognize that it's a bigger question, like that that there's an Mm -hmm. opportunity there to like, Think about what is driving what they're saying and how we can help with that bigger picture, you know, in addition to whatever specifics and not only respond with the solution that we in an effort to be helpful, like that we think that they should do or that they want, you know, Mm -hmm. and because then that can be something that maybe they would have um, navigated to but it's not fair or appropriate. And that's, I think, how we see a lot of the disparities and outcomes because that process can be strengthened.
2: Right. Absolutely. I think it's about contextualizing, right? Like really understanding that this person, it's not just about the pregnancy or the birth, but looking at them more holistically. Yeah, their lives. Yeah, Right, their lives. And what... It's potentially influencing, impacting who they are and how they're showing up, and mm-hmm. taking a moment to perhaps just go a little deeper with that, you know, and, and, and asking additional questions and really getting a, a fuller picture. Oftentimes within healthcare professions, we talk about taking the history is 80% of figuring out what the, you know, 80 or 90% of figuring out what the, what the problem is. But what I would say is perhaps putting less focus on the problem and spending a little bit more time doing a deeper dive into what is here and how can we best address it. address it. And it may not be the easy answer, but being willing to do the work. And I think that's part of what we're wanting to do and the projects that I'm working with you on is doing this deeper dive and really thinking about how can we elevate the lived experience of this individual and how might we help them in the way that they would find most helpful, mm-hmm. right? Not what we think, given our limitations.
1: And what you said about like how they show up, I think that's been really important for me and I think our broader team to learn about how some, um, some behaviors are for self-preservation, you know, Absolutely. and like when we share and however we respond, it's like help seeking or avoidance. And this, again, I think it's incredibly powerful to try to get at the reality of what's occurring so that then together we can have, a. Uh, transformation you know and i'm I'm here for the for the revolution, and like mm-hmm. you know and when you said about interventions like yeah, we need to not be doing more things or have this be like but like we need to change this standard, and I think you know the culture of health is what drives like well in our you know societal views too, like it's in the healthcare system as a part of that, but like how we think about this. Journey, you know, and the pieces of it, then that drives everything, you know, what we think to ask and who, right, and who we don't. Right, um, right. And, right.
2: and I about. think that's how we ultimately get to achieving health equity, right, and thinking about this, this idea surrounding health equity where every individual, every person, regardless of background, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, payer status, you know, insurance status, regardless of all of that, have an equal, fair, and just opportunity mm-hmm. to achieve their optimal health. Mm-hmm. That's what it's about. You know what I mean? And I think that this is where we're wanting to go to. And I, and I perhaps in my broader vision, think it is achievable. Mm-hmm. You know, or I mm-hmm. wouldn't be wanting to do right. this work, <laughs> right? I recognize that it's not necessarily an easy ask. There's a lot of inherent barriers to achieving that. But I think we're doing the real work of wanting to figure out how can we achieve equitable health for all individuals. And, I, you know, I, I'm struck. In the past couple of years, just thinking about racial injustice, social injustice, and how that has impacted communities, fundamentally bringing back these simple ideas surrounding kindness, compassion, authenticity, being seen, that, hit, that, that hits home for me. Mm-hmm. As a black woman, I want to be seen. I want to be heard. And I want my words to be valued. Inherently, not because somebody else may value may may somehow come and then add their own two, you know, two sense that then adds some credibility to what I said. No. When I say it, believe it. This is my lived experience. And so we can talk on and on and on about George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and, you know, and all that has happened. There, it, things seem to have quieted down a bit, which worries me a bit, to be perfectly honest, because I don't know that anything has truly changed. And I think that needs to be continued to be highlighted in ways that recognize these are stressors and I, w- I am anxious to see birth outcomes as a function of this time, right? Has there been an uptick at all in adverse outcomes? And also the lived experience of Black birthing yeah. individuals and how they navigated all of that, right? I think we're seeing some of that in the work that we've done together in evaluating um, the impact of COVID and um, racial unrest and injustice, that has happened during that time. But imagine what women told me was uniquely stressful about being black and pregnant, for an example, are the judgments and assumptions that are made about them, right? Negative. Absolutely. If they aren't wearing their wedding ring, that their providers are saying, oh, is the father of the baby not involved? And this, this, this participant, this individual said, my husband is at work. Yeah. and couldn't make it today. But there was an assumption. Yeah, Well, she wasn't wearing her wedding ring because she has gained weight during the pregnancy. Yeah. And, and not for nothing, if she doesn't want to wear a wedding ring, that's yeah. perfectly within her right. Another individual said, when I found out I was having a son, the stress of what that meant, the conversations that would have to be navigated When do they go from being cute to being a threat? The stress that comes with that is real. And so how do we address that? How do we shift the society? How do we shift the culture? How do we shift the paradigm by which we are living in this very real pressure cooker, if you will? How you navigate those relationships, those conversations, that stress, how do we navigate that stress for Black women?
1: What else do you want to bring up? You know,
2: if I don't get anything else across, just how important it is I feel that we're seen, heard, and valued. And I've said that so many times, but it really is inherently so important um, to me. And if I could just share a story with you really quickly. So I um, attended a five-day workshop, mindfulness workshop up in New York and had the opportunity to co-facilitate. And I was asked to co-facilitate this because they wanted to bring in this aspect of stress and the unique type of stressors that can be present for certain populations. And knowing that I'm a stress researcher, they really valued um, my perspective. And so I was was brought in to help co-facilitate and and navigate some conversations that perhaps may be a little bit uncomfortable. However, as a nurse midwife, I am perfectly comfortable in uncomfortable (laughs) situations, right? So um, birth can be, you know, There's all types of things that happen during birth. I'm completely comfortable holding space for birthing individuals in whatever ways that I need to do that. And so getting back to this experience where I um, showed up and showed up in such authentic ways to um, share this content, this mindfulness content with this group of individuals. And it was the day to talk about stress. Right, And so I was talking about stress and stress reactivity and mindfulness mediated stress response and, and talking to them about the Lazarus and Folkman model, um, transactional model of stress and really gave them real world examples of the unique stressors that can be present for um, black women. And but really bridged it back to how do we show up with authentically with our individual identities mm-hmm and the intersectionality of those identities. For me, it is black woman, right? But it could also be black woman, mother, mindfulness instructor, whatever those intersections of how we identify. But I shared with them a bit about the unique experiences of stress for black women. And we talked about stressors and I piled up cushions of like, okay, just name stressors for me. What are some things that are stressors in life? Right, and people said finances, job, work, family, you know, and I started piling up cushions, right? So that they could see all these different stressors that exist and how that can represent kind of cumulative stress, right? Or also what we call um, allostatic load. Um, That's something that Bruce McEwen talks about. And so I did this demonstration and we talked about stress and, and people had questions. And apparently I kept saying, I see you. I see you, I see you, as the hands were going up. I may not have been able to answer the question in the moment, but I was acknowledging, I see you. Had no idea that I was doing that. And so afterwards, you know, we had a break and then we came back after the break and it was brought to my attention during the break that some individuals were having a really hard time holding space for the content that was delivered, like it was really hard for them to hear about these unique stressors that exist for black women, and so I came back and I kind of circled back to this you know i i I, I, wanna, I, I wanted to address it, and I wanted to be able to have people open up even more about what was what's difficult about hearing about different lived experiences right and one individual. Um, spoke up and she said, you know, I noticed during the morning session that Karen kept saying, I see you. And that is steeped in um, this African tradition of being seen and being heard. And she said, Karen, I just want to let you know that in all that you shared with us this morning, I see you. And it was a moment for me where I felt this is, this is what I'm talking about, right? And, and that this white woman, and I, in full transparency, was the only black woman in this entire group. And she said, Karen, I want to let you know that I see you. And the flip side to that is, I am here. And this is steeped in this African tradition, um, which is when a person greets you, they say, I see you. And the person then responds with, and I am here. And then that person says, I see you. And then you in turn would say, and I am here. Right? And so recognizing that kind of call and response, right, of I see you, And I am here. And I have, I mean, there was so much there for me in recognizing that I actually think that's some of the programming that I'd be developing, a mindfulness program called I See You and I Am Here, because that is at the essence of what I believe is needed. Mm -hmm. If, as a community, we could truly stand and look at another individual... That is not like us, and say with true authentic- authenticity, I see you. And for that person to then be able to respond, and I am here. How that's a shift, Kristen, that's a shift. If we could do that for one another, whether it's in the healthcare space, not just healthcare provider to patient healthcare provider to healthcare provider thinking about that interaction and how we would be providing better care to our patients if we are seeing one another taking a moment to truly see one another not what has been politicized or you know aggrandized within society where we're all getting hijacked by you know whatever is the newest thing that we're doom scrolling through Instagram or whatever our social media may be. But honestly, as I think over the last couple of years, just being seen
1: and being here. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what power is then, you know, like showing up for each other and, first of all, being willing to do that and being open to what that means. Yes. Um, yes. I think that's sure something to work towards. Yes. You know? Yes. And and having, you know,
2: being humble. hmm You know, Joy, Joya Career Perry, I heard her talk about not this idea of being culturally competent, but being culturally humble.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Right. Can I ever say that I'm competent in another one's culture? I don't know. Right. But can I say I'm humble enough to want to learn
1: mm-hmm. about
2: that culture?
1: Yeah. Right? And, and this this I learned this morning, this concept of um, confident humility or maybe it's the reverse humble confidence, like, you know, I'm I'm here and I'm trying and I know <laughs> that like this is a journey, you know, and Mm -hmm. and this is something to, that I don't know what I don't know. And I, but I'm here and I want to, and I, I know not only do we have good intent, but we are intentional with our actions to try to, you know, to show up and to try to listen and to reflect on what not only is Shared, but then what that means and recognizing that takes a lot, I think, and over time. Like, right. Um. And and so I think that I I totally in alignment with you about humility and how that should I think be embedded t- to us in our journeys and becoming better humans and therefore you know being helpful in in our spaces.
2: And although one would think that this is not something that is innovative, in fact, I think it is innovative. I think. Coming to a particular, if you will, public health issue or public health problem and being willing to take a moment to kind of do this deeper dive and steep into these concepts and these ideas in a way that isn't like we don't have time to really be thinking about, you know, seeing and hearing and, you know, and being humble and all that. Like we need to figure out how to reduce you know, readmission to the hospital, you know what I mean, from postnatal care. This is the innovative piece. It's thinking outside of, in mindfulness, we have this exercise called the nine dots. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's nine dots, three dots across and three dots down, right, in this square. And we ask people to just take a moment to think about how you can connect all nine dots with four lines, never lifting your pen, from the page, right? And we send them home that night to, to just think about that. When some people come back the next day and they're just like, oh my God, possible? I was up all night. I don't know how to figure this out. Oh my goodness, and they're stressed about it. And so we give them opportunities to come up and show how they try to solve uh-huh. the issue. And I, you know, And then I go up and I show them how it can be done. But the idea is you have to go outside of the nine dots, mm-hmm. right? You have to think outside of that block of nine. Mm, that's interesting. You have to bring the line up and out and then back in. Oh. And that's the innovative piece that I think is important for us as we work together. Thinking outside of our habitual, conditional way, conditioned way of thinking about approaching a problem The innovative piece is thinking outside of those nine
1: dots. Literally outside the box. Literally outside of the box. It's in in this world of, you know, subject matter experts and technical assistance and coaching. And that I think that to me what's innovative is recognizing the wisdom that we all have, that we are all experts in, in these things in different ways. And that integration is the power. Absolutely. Absolutely. I
2: believe that the community has the answers. We just need to ask them.
1: Thank you, Dr. Karen. Um, Uh, Thank you. Always a pleasure. I'm so excited that we got to see each other. Thank you for listening to Maternal Health Innovation, a podcast from the MHLIC. You can find this and other resources at maternalhealthlearning.org. We also have accounts on Twitter at MHLIC underscore org and Facebook. Search for Maternal Health Learning and Innovation Center. This episode was edited and produced by Earfulness.
0: This project is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, under grant number U7-CMC-33636, State Maternal Health Innovation Support and Implementation Program Cooperative Agreement. This information or content and conclusions are those of the author and should not be construed as the official position or policy of, nor should any endorsements be inferred by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.